This holiday season, please consider supporting the Cato Institute and specifically the Cato Daily Podcast. Visit cato.org slash podcast sponsor to get started. If you support Cato with a donation of $1,000 or more, I'll gladly give you a shout out on the podcast, or you can designate another individual to receive that benefit and all the other benefits of being a Cato sponsor. That website again is cato.org slash podcast sponsor. And thank you for your generosity. This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Saturday, December 14th, 2019. I'm Caleb Brown. State constitutions protect liberty. That's no surprise. But it's important for state judges to know that the U.S. Constitution needn't be consulted if the liberty interest is protected by a state constitution. Rick Essenberg is president and founder of the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty. We spoke in October in Colorado Springs about the whys and hows of protecting liberty at the state level. I will get some of the details wrong here, but uh, my friend and former colleague Anthony Comegna at the Cato Institute sort of educated me about Abram D. Smith, who wrote uh, an, an important opinion in a case declaring that a man who had been uh, liberated from slavery and uh, ended up in Wisconsin was, in fact, uh, a resident of Wisconsin and was due all of the rights that uh, people in Wisconsin are due. And um, the the U.S. Supreme Court overturned that case. But uh, this was a case where the state constitution protected a liberty, the liberty of being a free person and uh, the federal government not not going along with it. So it's, that's at least an important example in Wisconsin of a state constitution doing a job that uh, the feds won't do. Right. It's a great story. Uh, Joshua Glover was a runaway slave. Um, he was apprehended by federal authorities. He was being held in the jail in Milwaukee. Uh, an abolitionist named Sherman Booth got on his horse and he rode through the streets of Milwaukee, uh, hollering, free men, arise. And uh, they uh, uh, they executed what the local newspaper called the writ of open sesame. And they busted Joshua Glover out of uh, out of jail in Milwaukee. There was then uh, the uh, the 19th century example of the OJ chase, where but but it was with with carriages and horses, and they chased Joshua Glover uh, uh, through Waukesha County. He eventually uh, got away, disappeared, and was never heard of again. So the prosecution was against Sherman Booth for conspiring to violate the Fugitive Slave Act. Now, it wasn't just the state constitution that Justice Smith relied on in this case. He he went one step further, a step that we would all agree that he probably was not entitled to legally take, although he was sort of morally correct. And that was that he he said, I am not bound by U.S. Supreme Court decisions that uh, have held that the Fugitive Slave Act is constitutional. And uh, therefore, uh, a unanimous Wisconsin Supreme Court granted a writ of habeas corpus freeing Sherman Booth. The case was appealed to the United States Supreme Court. Uh, the infamous uh, Justice Taney, who wrote Dred Scott, uh, wrote the majority opinion and uh, reversed the U.S. Uh, the Wisconsin Supreme Court to this day, the Wisconsin Supreme Court has never accepted the mandate of the United States Supreme Court. And one justice who wrote not a dissent, but a concurrence saying that he thought the Fugitive Slave Act was constitutional, then lost his bid for reelection. 
in the uh, oh, over 150-year history of the Wisconsin Supreme Court, only two justices who were ever first elected lost their bid for re-election. He was one, and the other was a justice who in 1966 uh, voted to allow the Milwaukee Braves to move to Atlanta. <laughs> so it's a high bar uh, to be not re-elected in Wisconsin to the court. So when, when uh, we think about state constitutions and what those things guarantee uh, versus the the baseline protections that uh, the U.S. Constitution is supposed to afford us. Uh, you know how how seriously one do state courts take the provisions of state constitution? Well, they don't take them seriously, but they can. So, so what we like to talk about is uh, is what are sometimes called cognate provisions, where both the state constitution and the federal constitution protect a particular right, the right to due process, right to free speech, uh, freedom of religion. Um, many of the protections in our Bill of Rights had um, antecedents in pre-existing state or colonial constitutions. And for about 150 years, most individual rights litigation, and there wasn't as much as there is today, generally took place in state courts interpreting state constitutions. But then in the mid 20th century, when the United States Supreme Court began to incorporate provisions of the Federal Bill of Rights into the 14th Amendment and apply them against the states, uh, the use of state constitutions as independent guarantors of liberty fell into disuse. And uh, there was a famous, or at least famous to constitutional lawyers, article written by Justice William Brennan in 1977, in which he pointed out an indisputable but overlooked fact, and that is that state courts, while they have to follow, uh, they have to respect the protection of liberty, which the United States Supreme Court has interpreted these constitutional provisions to provide. Right? They have to go at least as far as the U.S. Supreme Court has said. You use the term baseline, it's a good word. They can go further. Right? They can interpret these constitutional provisions to provide greater protection for individual freedom than the U.S. Supreme Court has interpreted their federal counterparts to provide because that would not interfere, that would not violate the supremacy clause. It would not contradict our federal constitution. It would only augment it. So uh, where are, where's the fertile ground for states uh, uh, your expertise is in Wisconsin. What, where's the fertile ground for states to go about beginning to protect liberty more vigorously than the U.S. Supreme Court does? Well, you know, Justice uh, Brennan uh, wrote because he was disappointed with the failure of the Burger Court to continue the rights revolution that uh, was uh, started by Chief Justice Earl Warren. And so he wanted greater protection uh, uh, against uh, racial discrimination, gender discrimination. He wanted greater protection for the rights of criminal defendants. And of course, that's something that state courts could do. Uh, but there's no reason that it would be limited to rights that are favored by political progressives. So this would be an opportunity, for example, uh, uh, you know, federal courts have tended to uh, uh, completely abandon any type of protection um, for economic liberty or any limit on the power of state governments to favor one set of competitors over another uh, or to you know, put up fences uh, uh, that keep people from working, such as occupational licensing laws. And it's really difficult to make 
uh, state constitutional claims that protect that type of right, the right to earn a living. Um, I've tried, and so far I've failed. But uh, it it is fertile ground. State courts could interpret state constitutional provisions uh, to provide this protection, either through uh, examination of some rights provision in a state constitution or through interpretation of uh, the limitations on the state's police power. Because remember, we know that Congress has enumerated powers. If you if you open up the, the federal constitution, it says Congress can do one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. State constitutions tend not to be that way. It looks as if they have plenary power, but historically, what courts have said is that states have the police power, but the police power is not unlimited. Now, it's gotten to be unlimited in sort of a parallel to the federal court's abandonment of the protection of economic liberty. But I think economic liberty is an area where um, uh, uh, courts can provide greater protection. Um, religious freedom may be another one where I, uh, our um, uh, United States Supreme Court has interpreted the free exercise clause of the United States Constitution to uh, to say that um, if a law is uh, neutral and of general applicability, it's constitutional even if it impairs a religious practice. Uh, some state courts, Wisconsin Supreme Court is one of them, has said, no, that's not right. We don't follow the U.S. Supreme Court. We provide greater protection for religious freedom. We say that if a state law uh, substantially impairs a religious practice, then it is subjected to strict scrutiny. That is, it can only stand if it is necessary to achieve a compelling state interest. And there's no less oppressive way to uh, enforce that, That's right. that claim. That's right. And so um, this is something that state courts can do. It's not something that they have done. Uh, for the most part, they've tended to to move in lockstep with the uh, federal interpretation of these cognate provisions, these provisions that address the same thing. Lawyers often don't make the claims. A lot of times when you read a state Supreme Court decision, it will not distinguish between which constitution it's interpreting. And uh, Judge Jeffrey Sutton, um, ironically a federal judge, recently wrote a book called 51 Imperfect Solutions. Where, where he says uh, that uh, state courts shouldn't do this. They should prioritize state claims. That is, if somebody makes a state claim and he says lawyers should make them if they want to represent their clients, that the state court should address the state constitutional claim first. And if that resolves the case because the liberty claim is upheld, then there's no reason for them to interpret the uh, federal constitution. That makes sense. It makes sense. And and I think it particularly makes sense now in that we we see a great deal of uh, conversation or we hear a great deal of conversation about federalism now because of our, you know, the divisiveness of our politics and the, the polarization of the country. And a lot of people, Yuval Levin and others have said, look, federalism is a way out of this problem, right? We, we, if, we can't, if we can't all agree on one thing, uh, then maybe states can adopt different policies and and serve as laboratories of democracy, and then maybe we'll reach a national consensus. Maybe we won't, but at least we'll have this safety valve of you know having these dual sovereigns, and California can go its way, and 
and Texas can go its way. And mostly when people write about that, they're focusing on legislators and uh, and governors, but uh, state courts can do this too. Uh, they can serve as laboratories of democracy, and not only can they adopt differing interpretations of these constitutional provisions, but they can engage in a dialogue with the federal courts in which you know they can say, look, we're going to interpret our right uh, uh, to uh, be free of unreasonable searches and seizures in this way, and let's see how that works out, and maybe it'll work out okay. Uh, this is uh, the way in which we got the exclusionary rule to some extent, and that this was uh, this was a a provision that you know the idea that you know if if you gathered evidence in an unconstitutional way, it couldn't be introduced at trial. This was something that was developed at state courts uh, and then eventually adopted by the U.S. Supreme Court for the entire country. So it, it's worth then for judges who are interested in protecting liberty, which they all should be. They should. Um, it's it's interesting to note that a rule that can emerge from states can later be a, essentially adopted. Right, right. Uh, in, and and that's that's a really important thing for state judges to appreciate. Right. In in, in much the same way as uh, the case that we started with, uh, the case of, of Abelman versus Booth, you know, technically the Wisconsin Supreme Court had no business disagreeing with the U.S. Supreme Court on the interpretation of the federal uh, Fugitive Slave uh, Act. But in a larger sense, uh, they turned out to be correct. And so uh, that dialogue that they entered into uh, may have been part of the entire, uh, uh, you know, the entire national conversation that uh, that led us to uh, to appreciate how wrong we were. Rick Essenberg is founder, president, and general counsel at the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty. We spoke in Colorado Springs in October. You, too, can become a Cato podcast sponsor. Visit cato.org slash podcast sponsor to make a gift today. And thank you. <laughs>